Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. We bring the hardware today. We've got interviews with the Platinum Glove and Fielding Bible Award-winning Yankees catcher Jose Trevino and Cubs Gold Glove-winning left fielder, Fielding Bible runner-up, Ian Happ. Our VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales, will join us too. Let's get to it. Jose Trevino is the Platinum Glove and Fielding Bible Award-winning catcher for the New York Yankees. He joins us now. Jose, thanks for giving us a few minutes. Yeah, no problem at all. So your awards are for a series of different things that you do as a catcher. And I want to get into the idea of how do you do what you do. So I guess first I would just ask if you wanted to recap the year for you from a defensive perspective. It was it was a lot of fun, especially, I mean, it was a lot of fun at the end. In the beginning, it was tough getting traded two days before the season starts. Like, you know, as a catcher, you want to be well prepared. You want to know what those guys on the mound are doing. And I tell people this all the time. I'm like, man, Higgy was like the guy I had to lean on. Like I had to lean on Higgy because he was the guy that was like, hey, this guy's ball is going to do this. You know, he favors, he likes to do this. This is what he likes to do in certain counts. So like, man, just as me going out there is like important, Higgy was more important to me because I needed to know what these guys were throwing. But from a defensive standpoint, you know, I've, I've, I've always taken a lot of pride in my defense. And I would say, I mean, at the end of the year, when it's all said and done, I mean, there's no need to dress up these numbers. So like, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in them. How, do you, how intensely do you follow something like your framing numbers? To be totally honest, you can ask Tanner, Tanner Swanson about this. I really didn't look at them that much. Like I just kept, I just kept track of like, if I felt so like the thing for me, when I'm framing, if I feel like I'm making good moves and then I'm doing well, but if I feel like I'm making bad moves, then I'll look at the score and I'll be like, okay, I feel like that was a bad day. Let me look at it. And then if it shows positive, I'm like, okay, if it shows negative, I'm like, okay, let's see what we can fix. And even, I mean, even on the positive days, I'm like, man, I feel like I wasn't catching that well enough. You know, I wasn't, you know, being patient enough with my glove, anything like that. I want to look at it. But for the most part, it's like, I feel like I spend so much time in the off season working on my craft. It's like, here's the show. Like it's showtime. Go out there and have fun with it. So I actually, I've talked to a few basketball players too, and they said the same thing for you that they, they're most concerned about the feel. If it feels oh, good, yeah. they know that they yep. know that they're all right. And I get, yep. I get that the same thing from you. So how, how do you use data in your job otherwise? I mean, I use data like with everything. I mean, whether it's the scout hitters, whether it's for the offensive side, but the defensive side, I mean, that's how you kind of use it. You're like, all right, how can I get my defensive metrics up? How can I, you know, help my team win a baseball game by being a catcher, by quote unquote, being the guy behind the dish. So you, you look at different things, how you can impact the game, whether that's, you know, pitch framing, caught stealing, anything from bunt plays to pop-ups to covering bases to anything, really anything. So I, I, I mean, I try to, I just try to go out there and help my team win every day. You mentioned your relationship with Kyle Higashioka, uh, the mm-hmm. other catcher. I'm curious, though, maybe we can use Nestor as an example here, Nestor Cortez. Uh, what was the pitcher introduction process like? Like, what do you do? Oh, man. So, like, for me, the first thing I like to do is I like to get my eyes on these guys. So, like, I have to catch them. So, the first day I went, I got traded, ended up playing that next day. I flew into Tampa. I got into Tampa about, like, 2 or 3 a.m., and was up at eight and then played the whole game the next day because all of our relievers were throwing that day. So I ended up seeing them in a day, but I didn't have any, like, I didn't have a lot of information on them. 
So Higgy was right there like, hey, this guy's ball is going to do this. Tanner was right there too. Like, hey, he likes to do this. So the first thing for me is I want to get a feel for these guys. Like, I want to see what their ball is doing from my perspective. I want to see if their ball's heavy, light, how it moves, different types of spin, how they like to use their pitches. So that was the first thing for me. And, and then, I mean, for Nestor, I, I had to get a feel for him. Like, I had to see what his stuff was. Like, why were people swinging and missing? Why were guys not hitting them around? And then as soon as I caught his first bullpen, I was like, that this is there's the reason why. I see why. So So you knew that he was gonna be pretty good right from the start. I mean, you could see I I, I mean I had confidence in all our guys. I thought all our guys were gonna be good. But as as the season <laughs> went on, I feel like as a, as the game went on, I feel like Nestor became nastier. And like he would just add letters to like nasty and he'd be like all right this game's an n this game's an a s t y and he would just keep getting wise be nasty 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 so like for him it was uh it was impressive it was a good year so we're talking a few hours after someone on twitter named playoff tanaka put out a video that showed every instance uh, that they could pull from i guess it was baseball savant in which you caught a called strike on a pitch that did not appear to be in the strike zone and you're really good at it and you were the the leader in this this year every pitch framing metric you're right at the top so i, I we've talked to a few guys about this but what's your secret I, I don't have any secret potion secret juice or anything like that like if it's it's simple man if you if you want to get better at something you work at it and i work at framing a lot I work at framing a lot. I work at blocking a lot. I work at throwing. I work at these defensive things a lot. And there's people that can tell you, there's people that have witnessed this, this past off season that were like, dude, you're doing so much. Like you might need it. And I was like, no, man, this is what, this is what I'm going to do to help my team win. But for me, when I'm receiving a baseball, I want to set my body up in a good position to catch. Uh, I want to set my body up. I want to make sure my glove is in a good position to catch. So whether that's the pitch shape that's coming towards me, I still haven't come up with a word for it. But I like to basically like matching the plane of the pitch if you were hitting. I like to match the plane of the pitch with my glove when I'm catching. So whether it's going, you know, sinker into a righty from a, from a righty into a righty, I like to match my plane of the glove where I think that sinker is going to go. And I like to go to the worst possible pitch that this guy's going to make at the bottom of the zone, wherever it's going to go. And then from there, I think about just straight up moving the ball straight up. I feel like any kind of side to side movement, any kind of horizontal movement kind of gets you like kind of gets the umpire to be like, ah, like I see that. But for me, the straight up method helps. But I think there's a little I think there's a little twist to it. I say straight up, but there's a way that I think of it. And there's a way that other people think of it. Like some people like to think side to side. I like to think straight up just because I put my body in good positions to receive the baseball. And you can see it in the video. Um, you're beating the ball to the spot low, and then you're coming up to catch it. Yeah. As and, and yeah. you're you're essentially making sure that it's in the strike zone yeah. at the point yeah. at which the ball is there. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen yeah. a few guys with that. So, how's your relationship with umpires? Honestly, really good. Like, I don't have any bad relationships with any of the umpires. You know, I'm not one to moan and fuss back there. I know there are some guys like that. There's actually a few. But I'm not one to to go back there and, you know, say like, oh, you know, I think that pitch is there right there. Like, no, like, man, like, where do you I, I'll ask him, like, where do you have that pitch? Let me know if am I giving you a good am I giving you a good visual? If not, that's on me. And like sometimes I'll even catch a ball and be like, oh, like, like, damn, I, I, I messed that one up for you. That's my bad. That's that's on me. Like, like, I didn't give you a good look at that. And that's when, you know, that pit, that that umpire relationship 
it's just like back and forth, you know. And yeah, yeah, I'm gonna get pissed off if I don't get a called strike every now and then, and it might be off the plate, but like I'm I'm trying to get a strike for my pitcher here. Like I'm trying to get the count in our favor. So yeah, but I, I'm not one to like be back there and kind of like if I don't like the pitch, I mean it is what it is. He, he's not gonna change the call. He's not gonna change from a ball and a strike. Like he called it a ball, all right? And I just ask him like, hey, where do you got that? Is it is that there? And obviously, sometimes like deeper in the game, it, it, it could go from like, hey, where do you got that? To be like, hey, man, like I think that's a good pitch. Like, do you know too? Uh, do you keep track of like which umpires have which kind of zones, at least in your head, just a little bit? So, that, like Miller and Eddings are guys that have bigger ones. Hoberg's got one that I think is generally fairly well regarded. Yeah, um, yeah Hoberg's good. Do you do you have like kind of a, a mental picture of, of what these guys do? I mean, a little bit. You know, everybody gets those um, hot zones. Reports, what, sure. they, what they yeah, what they like to what they like to call, what they don't like to call, but. And in my mind, I'm not really worried about them calling a ball or strike. I'm worried about getting a strike for my pitcher. If a ball shows up in their zone, and it's a it's a hot zone for them to call a strike, and they call it a ball. I'm not thinking about that at that time. I'm thinking more about me getting the strike for my pitcher. Sure. Is there anyone on the team that is particularly hard to frame? Clay Holmes. I mean, sinkers at 18, at 98. Like it's it's incredible what that man does with the baseball. Like it really is. And I mean, I feel like our whole staff is like that. You got a bunch of guys like that. Like even what Garrett does with the ball, what Nestor does with the ball, what J-Mo would do with the baseball, like savvy, man, savvy special. But like, I, I feel like a lot of our guys are, I wouldn't say particularly hard, but like they have some tough pitches in their arsenal that are tough to catch at some times, but definitely homes of sinkers tough. It's what, tough. What's the hardest part of the job for you? The hardest part of the job for me. You're at a point where you're pretty good at this, but I got to think that there are some things that you still find a little difficult. Framing-wise? Just anything, catching. Anything. I mean, to be totally honest, Mark, I I love to work at this stuff. Like, I love to work on defense. Like, I love it. Like, I, I, I like going into a facility with a hack attack on, putting sliders as hard as I can in the dirt, and seeing how many I could square up right on my belly button as many times as I can. Like, I love that feeling. I love challenging myself with VLO fastballs on a machine. If I don't think it's hard enough that day, I'll move closer at the bottom of the zone. Like, I love, I, I, I want to find every way that it's not, and, and I, I just want to be good at it, not for myself, but for my teammates. I want to be good at it for my pitchers. I want to be good at it because I want to win. So, I, of course, like, yeah, I want to be good, but, like, I also want it to help my team. Like, if I didn't think it was going to help my team, I wouldn't be doing it. When we had Austin Hedges on, he had a lengthy monologue for us about robot umps and how he felt about the future of baseball in that regard. And I'm curious for you how you feel about that. I'm probably with Hedges on this. I think I can guess what side of the fence he's on. But I, I, man, I think it's so, I'm going to try to be careful what I'm going to say here. But at the same time, I could could care less. I, I, I think for me, what guys are doing behind the plate is an art. And I think baseball's an art. I think the game of baseball is an art, man. To watch, you could go down the field. You could go down the field to watch Aaron Judge hit a baseball. That's an art. To watch Anthony Rizzo pick a baseball. That's an art. To watch Garrett Cole make a fastball down and away on to a right-handed hitter. That's an art. You can go around the league to watch Nolan Arenado make a play at third base. That's an art. But And that's a skill that guys can get better at. All these guys that I named, they just didn't wake up and were like, oh, yeah, here's here's 100 here's a home run, here's a backhanded play, you know, down the line, 20 feet from the foul line, I'm not even looking at the bag, throw it right on the money. You know, this is things that guys actually work on. 
Mark. And as catchers, like I know what I work on. I know what I go through for this. And when a guy has a good, like a good catch or a good block or something, I'll say something. So I'll be like, man, good block, like good, good catch, like whatever it is, because I know how, I know how hard that is. I know how hard they work at it, you know? And for me, us catchers back here, man, are just trying, we're trying to make a living. You know, we're trying to make a living off what we love to do. And if we love to frame strikes, we love to frame strikes. We like to block baseballs. We like to block baseballs. You know, we want to win. Yeah, we want to win. Of course, is all this stuff going to help us win? Yes. And I think if we bring in the automated balls and strike zone, I mean, that, that, that takes away from guys that have incredible hands back there. Incredible because I say incredible because you have to catch baseballs that are coming 100 miles per hour at you moving in all every different direction. And then you have to catch a 92 mile per hour slider going in the other direction that might be in the dirt, or you might have to catch it for a strike. You know, this is a skill that I think people are starting to realize that there's some really, really good catchers in this league, like really good, really, really good. And I just think if you bring in that aspect of the automatic balls and strikes, like I just think it takes the aspect out of it. So let's close with this question, because as you talked about other catchers that you like watching catch, um, let's let's name a few. Besides your teammates, and besides Yachty, because I know that's an obvious one for you, <laughs> Yeah. who do you like watching catch? Man, Cal, Cal has some really good moves, man. I think Cal, Cal's catching onto it. Cal has some really good moves, man. I, I like the way he, he works back there. Let's see. Looking at, I like the way there's a kid. Gabe Morales, Gabe Morales from the Blue Jays. Mm-hmm. He's, I think he's got some skills, man. He's got some good hands on him and hedges, man. Hedges moves really good back there, man. I could go down the list, man. I, I, I just think it's, I think every guy is, is good in their way because it's so different because like, I can't do what Yachty did. I can't hedges can't do what Yachty did. You know, nobody can really do what Yachty did. They can only do it their way, you know, and, and to see how these guys like, I'm telling you, man, I'm a fan of a lot of catchers around the league because of how, like, I understand what they're trying to do. I, I, I'm, I'm that guy too. Like, I'm trying to win. I'm trying to get my team better, trying to get myself better. But like, I respect the guys that are doing it and working at it. And, you know, I respect the heck out of any catcher, but like, I, I, I'm a fan of a lot of guys around the league. You're a fan of a lot of guys, yeah. and I think a lot of yeah. guys are a fan of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because yeah. you're you're right now the standard setter, the platinum glove winner, the fielding Bible award winner, Jose Trevino. Yeah. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. And we're also joined today by NL Gold Glove Award winner Ian Happ of the Chicago Cubs. Ian won the award for left field. He was the runner-up to Stephen Kwan for the Fielding Bible Award there. He's also the co-host of a very entertaining baseball podcast, The Compound. Ian, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So from a team perspective, I know that 2022 was extremely frustrating, but individually you had a strong offensive year and you've got the defensive hardware. Can you recap your season for us? I, I think with an emphasis on the defensive perspective. Yeah. You know, it was my first real opportunity for a full season to get to play every day. You know, I got to go out there and play 158 games this year, which is something I'm pretty proud of. And, and you know, as a switch hitter, the first time I really got to take full time at bats from both sides of the plate. And it made a huge difference. You know, it was the offensive consistency, the ability to go out there and really put together four or five at-bats every day and have that over the course of a full season was great. But defensively, also the first time in my career, I've got to play one position. I played one game in center field, I believe. And besides that, well, one start uh, for sure. And kind of besides that, I played left field every single day. So the ability to really take hold of one position, I feel like I was having an understanding for it, not bouncing around, doing all of my work in that one spot. You know, I played 
you know, 10, at least 10 plus innings at probably five to six different spots every other year. And so just to be able to really lock one down was a huge, huge difference maker. Can you give a perspective on what playing left field, particularly in Wrigley Field, is like? Uh, yeah, playing playing outfield in Wrigley is a challenge, and playing left field is is really you know left and right have have their own challenges in Wrigley, which is interesting because you know at a ballpark where where those corner spots play a little bit different, you know you have the sun for innings one through three for day games in left, and then you get the wind at Wrigley blows in all different directions, so you get crosswinds each way, wind out, wind in, and variations of all of that. And it completely changes the ballpark. It completely changes the way that left field balls or left-handed balls go up, right-handed balls go up, the way things carry. So you're playing in basically a different ballpark every single day. You have the, the cold early in the year and then kind of coming back late and, and how that sun shifts throughout the year. I, you, know, you can tell that I've thought about this and played there for many years now because there is a ton of factors. Then you also have, you have really tight foul line wall. So you have the foul line really hugs up into that wall and then everything's brick. So you have the bricks and the ivy and the basket out there with a notch in in left center, pretty shallow left center that sneaks up on you really quick, but a really deep left field corner that's 355. So that has its own unique challenges too to how how you play and position yourself because you're not going to be running down a lot of balls in left center, but you are going to have to go get some balls in that corner. And it, it certainly is uh, very tricky out there. And one of the stats that we track here is sliding, diving, and jumping catches. And you had 34 of those this year. I think a very large number of those were in Wrigley Field. In fact, you slid over jump to try to make a play twice as often as you did the previous year. I'm curious what the reason was for that. Yeah, you know, there was a lot that came with playing every day out there. And one of the things was not making it look pretty, but doing the things that I thought would help me just be as athletic as possible with the best chance to catch the ball. One of those things was, you know, they always teach you as an outfielder to put your head down, run to a spot, turn over one shoulder instead of opening your body to look over the other shoulder. Those are things I always found pretty challenging, especially at Wrigley with the wind and the sun. And, and it's really dark out there because there's no lights behind you because it's a neighborhood. So all of the lights are in front. So the ball gets really backlit and it's kind of like a dark orb coming out of the stratosphere at you. So I, I, I always had a little bit of trouble with that. So this year I, I made a real conscious effort to not only not take my eye off the ball, but to really feel athletic out there. And one of those things with the sliding catches in particular is that I've always felt like when I can leave my feet and kind of get under the baseball and stabilize my head in that way, I see the ball down into my glove a lot better. Whereas, you know, running and trying to put your glove down and make a shoestring catch, your head's still bouncing. Those always made it a little bit more challenging for me. So I, I would say that I definitely did not have to slide as many times as I did, but the, it, it makes for a, a much easier catch for me, even at those ones that would be waist height, just going down and getting below the ball and getting my eyes right behind it. So as a matter of fact, there were two balls that I watched and I watched most of your really good plays this year. There were two balls that I watched that that what you just said about your head and and such that where those came into play. And I'm wondering if you remember these. Tyler Naquin was one and TJ Friedel was another. I remember the TJ Friedel one, I believe, pretty well. That was kind yeah. of like a, a waist-tight ball in left center. Yep. yep. Naquin, I can't remember exactly what the Naquin one was, but there was also one on Tyler O'Neill in left center, which I think you said was one of the highest value plays I had this year. It was left center at, in yep. St. Louis. And you know, probably a ball I could have kept running through 
but that challenge of the center fielder bearing down on you and not wanting to make that into a collision. And also that, like I said, that leaving my feet and just giving myself that split second in the air, my head is still gives me a lot more confidence in actually being able to pull that ball in. Do you worry about injury, potential injury by diving, sliding, or jumping? No, not by not by diving or sliding. You know, I, I feel like I have a pretty good feel for that, pretty good feel for my body. Probably some of that from being an infielder early on and 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 sliding and, and making plays. The yeah, the only worry that you know, I got in a collision with Nico Horner last year in May. I was playing center. He was playing, I believe, second and and running out there for a ball and we had a pretty nasty one where put me and him both on the on the ten day. And, you know, that I think that those collisions are the scariest thing to me. Center collisions with center and collisions with your infielders coming back. Why do you rate so well in terms of initial reaction ball off the bat from some of the metrics that we've seen? That's a good question. I, you know, I worked really hard with Will Venable when he was with us at, at pre-pitch stuff and continued that work with our, our current athlete coach, Willie Harris. It's something that I think is super important. I, and I know that I grade out well there. So I think for a guy, you know, I have a good speed, but I think it takes me, I have good top speed, but I think it takes me a minute to really get up to speed. And especially having gone back and forth so much in my career, my route efficiency is still getting better, but definitely was something that was lacking early in my outfield days. So having that really good jump made up for that a little bit. And, and it's something that I try to take a lot of pride in that pre-pitch and really anticipating which way this guy might hit the ball. So now we dive into the numbers a little bit. You were the leader in defensive runs saved for us. I'm curious, how do you and the Cubs use data in terms of what you do on the field? You know, we we use it quite a bit. It's interesting. We had we we had a real data system that tried to position the outfielders and we had to make some adjustments to it. We had to especially early in the season, we had to have some manual overrides. We had to have a little bit of collaboration between the computers and the humans and <laughs> and really try to as our outfield coach myself and Alex Smith our analytics guy that was putting some of this stuff together or getting it and then putting it together. You know, we tried to have all of us work together where this is where the system says you should play. Let's look at this guy's spray chart and let's let's make sure that we're all set up and moving together as an outfield. That was a huge we, that was probably mid-April that we made some of those changes and a huge, huge improvement for for myself and, and for us. So I felt like I, we were I was putting myself in positions that were going to be very hard to make plays, especially at the different ballparks, because the, the way that I would play a guy in Pittsburgh with a 410 left center versus Wrigley Field with a 365, 370 left center, quite different. And so we, we looked at that quite a bit. And and I think also going through that process and knowing kind of where the spray charts were definitely helped me in, in understanding, you know, where, where guys in the lineup are going to hit balls. But then I also did a lot of work on just day to day trying to figure out which plays were being valued in a positive and negative way and and how that could really over the course of the season best help our team in as far as expected catch value and and you know run prevention. So essentially trying to probably take away more doubles and potentially high value hits. So all right, yeah. so we we talked with Christian Walker about this uh, earlier in the year about he was talking about where he positions himself and he talked about learning where hard hit ground balls are are hit and that that was the idea of his positioning was he figured that he could get to anything that was soft or medium, but he play, he wanted to play where the hard hit ground balls were hit. Where, where do you want to play typically? Yeah, it's really interesting because in the outfield, it's so much about game state. It's so much about, you know, if there's a runner on first base with two outs, it doesn't matter if we give up a single, right? Because it's so hard to get that next hit to drive in the run. 
And so we're really trying to prevent doubles. Differently than that, the guy on second base with two outs or guy on third base with two outs in a close game, we can't afford to give up a single. We can't afford for that guy to score. So we're playing a lot more shallow. And if the next guy beats us, that guy beats us with a double, we'll live to fight another day and get that next out. And so it has a lot to do with game state. But I would say in general, as a left fielder for right-handed hitters, those hooked balls down the line are not, you can't catch them. You know, they're, they're, they're hits all the time. So you're trying to take away the gap. I think more for left-handed hitters, it's kind of the, the inverse of that. Those guys that can fade the ball to the left field corner, that line that's going away from you, um, those are much harder plays. So you have to give yourself a chance to go get those. And the balls in the left center gap will be coming back towards you. And you're probably looking for help from your center fielder to kind of take some of those away, depending on, depending on the hitter. And, and, you know, at Wrigley, it's all about wind too. It's all about how's the wind going to affect the ball and, and where we're playing. So. So much of that is a multitude of factors that go into it, but it, it's something that I really enjoy trying to figure out how we can best you know, put ourselves to limit all that damage. So bluntly speaking, we don't factor wind into defensive runs saved, and I don't know any of the systems that do, and this allows us to kind of segue into something. I know you're interested in this, in how all this stuff is, is figured out. So I presume is, is number one on your list telling people you got to factor in the wind? Yeah, I try to I try to work into every conversation. It's so <laughs> it's just so impactful at Wrigley, and I, I think that when we come to the park every day, the kind of one of the first things that we do is look at which ways the flags are blowing, because Wrigley Field, like almost nowhere else, maybe we talked, maybe San Francisco is is a comp. It's it's such an old stadium. It is so low as far as where that second deck is. And it is so open to the elements because the, and the outfield bleachers are so low. You know, you think of Yankee Stadium, it's this massive cathedral where no wind can possibly get in. You're talking about Wrigley Field. It's open air. Everything is low. The wind has an impact on the flight of the baseballs like nowhere else. And it whips right off the lake. So, you know, we are looking at balls that are hit 108 miles an hour at 25 degrees that aren't going out of the park one day and balls at 92 at 35 that might go out of the park on another day. So it is just such an interesting uh, field to play every day where it, it can be, it can play so totally different day to day. So we've talked, uh, you and I have talked in the past about this and about how the defensive metrics work. Admittedly, there are differences. Ours defensive run save works one way. UZR works another. OAA works another. I'm curious as a player, what it's like to see all of these different things and how you might interpret them. Yeah, I only care about DRS because it likes me. <laughs> we, uh, we like to hear that. <laughs> it, it's, it's tough because you, you know, it's hard to have an understanding. And I think a lot of players, if you're, if, if, if you, if you gave a player three different defensive metrics and they graded out completely different in all three. One told them they were great. One of them told them they were okay. And one said they stink. Then the player would just say, well, why, why should I care about this if it makes no sense? And I've been the same player all year and everyone's grading me different. So I think that like for me, the frustration is I feel like I had a great year in left field. I win a gold glove and outs above average still doesn't like me. And now you, when you when you look at it further, baseball reference is using one set of numbers and Fangraphs is using another, right? Yep. Baseball reference doesn't give you as much of a positional knock. And so like for me, my defensive value from Fangraphs is better. So my overall war is 4.3 or whatever it was in baseball reference. And then I have on Fangraphs a 3.5 because I'm getting this massive knock just for going out and playing left field every day. And that factors into how you get paid at the end of the year. So when I have to go into arbitration, when I have to, 
you know, sell myself, then I am being knocked for, you know, gold glove defensive performance in left field of which I am getting a negative, you know, war rating from Fangraph. So uh, when guys are looking at this stuff and this is how you get compensated, it can be very frustrating when there's two completely different systems that are evaluating players. So it, I can certainly understand why why players would, I guess, react that way. Do you talk about about this at all with your teammates or, or your other guys on your podcast? Yeah, for sure. We talk about it quite a bit. And, and I think we have, you know, we have a group in Chicago that is, especially as this year, as we've started to look at these values and, and, and understand them, you know, there's coaches and guys that are, you know, the infield coaches or the outfield coaches that want their guys to succeed, that want their guys to have, you know, these numbers. And, and, you know, they're looking at guys across the league who are doing better than their guys or whatever, or, and they're seeing how guys are getting knocked for certain plays it is it, it's we have a lot of fun with it but it is it's an interesting you know it's just an interesting dynamic and then you have some guys that don't look at it at all you have some guys that have no clue how they factor where their war is but it, it's you know it's a part of and i think correa touched on it when he was doing some media during the playoffs you know it's a part of how you get paid it's a factor of, of where your career is going to end up and so paying attention to it and having an understanding of of how best not only you can help yourself but if if we believe in the numbers and the statistics, you know, the better you are defensively in these ways is going to help your team prevent runs. In defense of these statistics, pardon the pun, everyone's trying to get at the right answer. And I think this is it's an interesting situation because I mean, I'm sure a hundred years ago there were debates over the statistics that existed then, not as fierce because Twitter didn't exist, but it's still something it's very much a work in progress. The the person who, who created defensive run saved has frequently said that. But we do like the the idea of I think factoring the wind is something and all these things that we talk about that wind up being implemented are things that go through significant periods of uh, study. I do have a question. So I said, you and I have talked before. I've noticed this, and I'm guessing that you've applied it in places otherwise. It looks like you keep a notebook. Are you one of those players that, that keeps a notebook and keeps detailed notes on, on what you do? Yeah, I don't keep day-to-day notes. I don't write down day-to-day what happened, but you yeah. know, I, I take, especially in conversations and things where I think that are going to have an impact down the road, I do. I take a lot of notes and, and try to look back and reference them. Is that something that you recommend to high school players? Yeah, for sure. And I think guys, you know, Nico Horner's one, he journals every day after the game. You know, he's a guy that maybe it's after a batting practice session where he felt something, a defensive session, and then post game, you know, and whether you're keeping it on the pitcher and, and, and how you face them and keeping that journal, that's a lot easier to do at the big league level or the professional level when you're going to see guys over and over than it is at the amateur level. Or it's just the way that you felt, the way that your your body felt that day, your swing. And I think more importantly than any of the physical stuff is how you where you were mentally where you know what the thoughts the patterns that you were going up there with how you know if you were having competitive bats that day if you felt locked in if you were seeing the ball well i think all that stuff is far more important the anecdote that we always like to spit out is that at wrigley you can't rob a home run but you did get a home run robbery this year against paul DeYoung of the cardinals so i like to let we kind of relive a play do you remember what that play was like yeah that was my that was my first robbed home run i think ever and he hit it really high and it was in left center there and and everybody knows bush is huge it's a huge stadium big outfield and so i started running back there and it was kind of hanging up and i and i thought i was going to have a chance to catch it and i'm kind of spinning around out there in left center right by the bullpen it's kind of a notch out there and got my feet under me wasn't sure if it was going to it was one of those plays at the wall where you're not sure if it's going to go out or not but you have to you have to get up and it's not really a climbing the wall type of play and I saw it really well, made a good effort, and just once I got up there, realized that it was, you know, probably 
one of those ones that was just going to sneak out. And it was, it was a pretty cool feeling. Definitely probably harder to rob balls in, in, you know, center field. You sometimes you get that where you can run back and you feel like you have a really good chance at them. I would say left, you know, there's a couple parks, San Diego, Pittsburgh that we play in where you have a pretty good chance in left to go do that. But that was one that it just hung up there so long that I had a chance to go get it. All right, Ian Happ, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck. Glad that you like Defensive Run Saved. We appreciate it. Yep, thank you. And to close the show, we're with Bobby Scales, VP of Baseball at Sports Info Solutions. Hey there, how are you doing? Mark, always a pleasure to be on with you, my friend. How are you today? I'm good. So a couple of interviews here. We talked to Jose Trevino first, and he was someone who, from the moment we started, he was very into the interview. When I finished talking to him, I said, are you, are you now going to go work out today? He says, already taken care of. You don't want to know what time I got up. So Love it. Love I, it. I, I was curious for your impressions of Jose Trevino. First of all, Mark, I want to give you some kudos too. I know this is not necessarily about you, but you do a great job with these things, man. And I mean that. But yeah, I, there, there's so much to take away from Jose's interview. Again, I, I love the mentality. Um, his path to the big leagues was not a not an easy one. And, and, and clearly, if anybody's seen the back of my baseball card, I appreciate guys who have gone a unconventional or a longer route to get there. But one of the things that 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 we kind of talked about off air, and we've talked about this just in passing in some of the conversation that we've had, is is that I believe that that you're as a, as a as a professional player, professional athlete, especially some p- positions more so than others, but especially behind the plate, you're a craftsman, right? There's real science that goes into what you do, whether it's the technique of catching now, the one knee down, the movement up through the zone whether it's really understanding and have a deep, deep knowledge of the numbers and what they can tell you. He talked about that in terms of scouting hitters, in terms of scouting pitchers from an offensive standpoint for himself. But also, too, there's art. And the art of, of, of catching really is the relationship with your pitchers, getting to know your guys, not just what their ball does. And we'll talk about that in a second, but who they are as humans. And, and when you combine, I'm a big believer, and this is goes for any discipline, right? When you when you combine the 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 art and the science, you become a craftsman. And and Jose Trevino is on his way to being a master craftsman of catching. And I, I love that evolution. I love that journey. I think it is really telling when guys take a tremendous amount of pride on on both sides of it and and make themselves master craftsmen. So he talked about when he did get traded over to the Yankees, how it was two days before the season, and and he stressed how. I've got to see it. I've got to see what's coming out. I know the stuff. We've got this, you know, we've got the, the movement profiles from, from the various data resources uh, that we can get. We've got this. We've got that. I've seen video. I've got to catch it. And so there was a day, obviously, he, fl- he, he, he says this in an interview. He flies in and, you know, travel and getting stuff together. And it's just a, it, when, you, when you change teams, whether it's going up, going down, moving organizations, it's a nightmare. It's, it's, it's part of it. You have to deal with it as a professional, but it's a nightmare, right? So. He flies in and he figures out that his entire bullpen, then this is the bullpen going north. His entire bullpen is, is pitching that day. He goes, I got to catch it because he's got to see what it, what it does. If I'm a pitcher, okay, I'm in on this cat already because it had been really easy for him to maybe get the second half of the game or maybe take that day off and just get settled and get his stuff together and whatever, whatever. He didn't do that. He dove right in and I love it. And I, I love the fact too, this is kind of a bit of a change too in today's baseball. Catching is seen as a two man job on a team, right? And he obviously he ended up taking the number one job, and you know, ended up he's he was you know who won the Fielding Bible Award, he won the Rawlings Gold Glove, he's he made an All Star team, he's recognized as, as one of a you know a frontline catcher in this league now. 
But but the fact that I think it's, it says something about Higashioka, and I also think it says something about Jose Trevino in the in the relationship they were able to craft that Higashioka was willing to share that information with him and willing to help him along. And, and I think that that speaks volumes just at, for Jose himself, for Kyle Higashioka, for their relationship and for the craft of of the guys who put on the gear back there. I, I, it was wonderful. I mean, the whole that whole thing was just fantastic to me. A remarkable story, given that, as you said, he was traded two days before the season started, plays 100 games for the first time in his career, and he's the best at pitch framing, and he's the best at just about every aspect of catching and wins the fielding Bible, wins the platinum glove, uh, our hats off, certainly to Jose Trevino. No it's question. always It's always good when, they, when you can combine the metrics, which we've got, with the inside perspective, I guess, that someone like that brings, the humanity of it, which is really kind of cool. And we've talked about catching a couple of times here. I want to segue to Ian Happ. Now, I'll preface this by saying you didn't necessarily hear what he had to say, but I think we could take a pretty good educated guess at what he had to say. And that's that Wrigley Field is a very difficult place to play the outfield, whichever outfield position you're in. And I know that you are someone who has firsthand knowledge of this. And I know that Ian feels that Wrigley needs to, in terms of the defense metrics, Wrigley needs to be judged kind of separately from the other parks. And I'm curious for your take on uh, the challenge of playing the outfield at Wrigley Field. Yeah, Ian Happ is absolutely correct about that. I I think it's an extremely unique environment. When you talk about a number of factors, I mean, you want to talk about the wind, sure, maybe where the Giants play, AT&T Park out there in San Francisco is comparable. Even on the south side of Chicago, the wind is, is is not a joke over there either. But when you couple the wind, when you couple behind the behind that ivy, friends and family of our show, there's bricks and more often than not bricks win when you run into them. <laughs> so it's real. I remember having to peel Sam fold off the ground one night after he went flying into them and made a catch and, 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 and he got up. I don't know how I helped him up and he stayed in the game. Probably shouldn't have, but it seemed to not have rattled anything around. Did a great job this year as the GM of the, of the Philadelphia Phillies. But in, in all seriousness, it is a very unique environment. The the way that the outfield is built, it is the deepest part of the part. The is very deep in the corners, and then it comes in, and then it slopes back out towards center field. It plays even differently than it did when I was there in two thousand nine and ten, because now you have several more large video screens in the outfield, which makes the ball. You know, it shields it shields some of the wind. But then also times there's, there's gaps and if it can, it can kind of catch those little wind tunnels. It is just a very difficult place to be a really good outfielder. And so, yeah, I, I definitely could understand how Ian would, would believe and, and have a, and rightly so. Now, how you'd go about quantifying that, I don't know. That is not my, I, that is not, I understand the numbers. I understand the value in them. I don't know how to actually compute, computate such thing, but it is different and it should be, and it should be classified as such. So definitely agree with him on that front. It's certainly challenging and all the better for him that he was able to, with that, win the gold glove this year. And there was one, we talked about this, I think, with Brendan Rogers when we did the Fielding Bible Award about the diving and the sliding and the jumping. And this year, Ian Happ, essentially, I don't want to say Kevin Pillar because I don't feel that that's exactly it, but essentially... Kevin Pilar was the guy that always would lead in that stat. And this year, Ian Happ was a runaway leader for that mm. in the outfield. And I'm curious about the idea of the approach of being willing to do that at Wrigley Field. Well, I think, first of all, just diving in general is a mindset. It's tough. I know when I was, it, 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 my last year in Los Angeles as the, as the farm director, one of the things we kept track of was ground contacts because obviously it's difficult. That It's physical. It's a very physical thing when you're running full speed. And these are, these are large grown men 
for the most part, throwing themselves on the ground in an effort to catch a baseball before it hits. That's that's the cumulative effect of those things on your body. Those things take a toll. Uh, and so for me, it's a mindset of being willing to endure that, not just for your own personal benefit and your own personal metric, but for the thought of winning the game for your team and doing the doing the right thing for your team. So I think that it's it's really important. There's things you can do. There's low impact things you can do to simulate dives. There's low impact things you can do to simulate getting up from dives. You can bring in pads. I did things like that when I was with Pittsburgh and the outfield with our with our minor league guys. You know, you can bring in a gymnastics pad and you can practice diving. You can practice rolling once you catch the ball to protect your arms and your hands. You know, a lot of times we've seen outfielders injure themselves when they make that dive. Glove gets caught. It's a broken thumb. It's a broken wrist. Are you always able to to, to mitigate some of that risk? No, and that's part of it too. You got to be willing. You got to know that that I you know if I go for this ball and I die for it, it could. A couple of things could happen. One, I could not catch it. And two, even if I do catch it, I could end up injured. And you have to put those things out of your mind and be willing to do that. So I think it really speaks to mindset more than anything else. Yep. And Ian, certainly of a mindset that I think that he was he was determined this year to be the, the player that he was, four-war player and a gold glove winner in left field, runner-up to the Fielding Bible Award. All right, last thing. Astros won the World Series. Congratulations to them. Beat the Philadelphia Phillies. We had, I guess, skin in the game on both sides mm-hmm. in that we had employees, former SIS people with the Astros. We had former SIS people with the Phillies. Congratulations to both teams. I'm curious, though, for your takeaway from 2022 as we head to 2023, if there are any trends or things that we should be thinking about as we go into next season. I'd like to think that we're going to that we're going to move again, continue to move closer to where playing the game matters. I, I just I just find it so interesting that you play a certain way all year, and then all of a sudden, you know, when when it's when it really counts, when it's winning time and people start going home because you lose, people want to bunt all of a sudden. People want to move runners all of a sudden. The single the other way is is something that people want to do again. I, I think if our, our our game, I truly believe this, if we got back to focusing on those types of things, I think the quality of our game would be better on an individual level. I think the the skill level of the game would come back. And, he, and here's what I mean by that. Our, our athletes now are bigger, stronger, faster than I think they've ever been. They can throw it harder. We know that. They can hit it further. We know that. For me, the skill level, while it's high, I, the, the actual skill level of the gameplay has regressed. We've become a slave to the three true, out, three true outcomes. And, and we talked about earlier, you know, off, offline, Mark, the, what are we, what is it going to look like going forward? I think banning the shift is going to bring back the single, <laughs> the single the other way, the two hopper through the hole the other way is a thing. And it's okay. And, and, and it, it's okay for that bat to end that way offensively. It doesn't just have to end in a double or a homer or punch out. I think I will say this. I'm a little I'm a little fearful of what's going to happen to pitching with people not being able to cover the most the the parts of the pie where guys hit the ball the most. I think there will be a larger premium on the pitching side of it of swing and miss stuff, trying to beat bats constantly, trying to strike people out. It seems like we're playing a big game of strikeout with every game. So there's there's clearly yin and yang. So those are really my takeaways, and it's more take it's more of a what's coming next. What are, what are these changes that Major League Baseball are going to implement moving forward? What's how is that going to look? And only time will tell. I mean, I know there's people, ourselves included, trying to do research on some of these things now, but only time will tell. They'll they'll they will play out the way they play out. But I do think that pitching will be adversely affected. I, I'm hoping that guys will 
people will get rewarded for hitting singles the other way, not just with two outs in the ninth with a guy on third, but in the top of the fourth with nobody on and just hitting a two hopper through the hole and finding a way to get on base that way. And certainly plenty of room to be able to analyze all of that as well. And we will continue this along throughout the off season. We will pop in every, I'd say, three to four weeks to do a show. And we're glad that, Bobby, you're able to join us as usual. Also, thanks to Jose Trevino and Ian Happ. Thanks to them for being with us this week. For Bobby Scales and our two guests this week and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for tuning in to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.